I'm Ben Horton. I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thanks very much for joining us. We've got two fascinating interviews for you this week and we also have, very excitingly, a new co-host. You heard last time from our colleague Amrit Swali and she'll be back in future episodes but today I'm delighted to be joined by Mariana Vieira. Mariana, how are you doing? I'm good Ben, how are you? I'm good, I'm tired. It's the end of a meeting filled day. This is meeting number seven. And I feel somewhat like I've just spent my entire day on Zoom. But other than that, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to report this is my only meeting of the day. So you might as well have a little envy right now. Yeah, no, I'm not happy about that. But uh, (laughs) maybe I should have uh, sent you some of my meetings. Okay, cool. Well, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your job at Chatham House? Sure. So I work as an editorial assistant for Chatham House's bi-monthly magazine, The World Today. We're also known as the International Affairs sister publication. Uh, The magazine runs both in print and digital, and I provide support to the different stages of the magazine production, starting with uh, generating article ideas, commissioning pieces, copy editing, and uploading the digital version to our website. In line with Chatham House's strategic goals, my role also focuses on monitoring and ensuring gender balance amongst our contributors, but also curating content that keeps in mind uh, youth outreach and engagement. But enough about me and strategic goals. What about you, Ben? Who did you speak to with this episode? So this week, I spoke to Claudia Sadoff, who is the Managing Director for Research Delivery and Impact at CGIAR, which is a global partnership that brings together international organizations who are involved in research about food security and agricultural science. And we spoke about the relationship between food security and climate change in what is an enormous year for climate politics. There are so many different summits, COP26, the UN Biodiversity Summit, many others that are thinking about our relationship to the environment and it feels like a pretty pivotal year for that to be taking place. So I spoke to Claudia about what impact food systems have on environmental change and how we should be rethinking our relationship to how we produce and consume food. And then we're following that up with another interview. Mariana, who did you speak to? So I spoke to Dr. David Vivers, who's a historian currently based in the School of History of Queen Mary University of London, where he is completing a postdoctoral fellowship. He has published a book so far uh, on the origins of the British Empire in Asia, and he's actually exploring non-European perspectives of the British Empire for his next book, uh, which he tells me will be with us sometime in 2023. Just before the new year, he wrote a magazine article for The World Today, which, amongst very other interesting things, we discussed in the interview. So we had a very timely discussion, which was inspired or rather propelled by the recent frenzy around the British government's quote-unquote culture war agenda and the longer-term implications of empire debates for both scholars and politicians. David highlighted how the decades or even centuries-long tradition of scholars shaping the historical debates has become highly politicized in the post-Brexit world. David also offered some really interesting remarks on national funding, the importance of challenging myths or even outdated ideas, 
And we ended on a more positive note on how education and the global history can provide critical skills to break the logjam of the good versus bad empire debate. Awesome stuff. Let's have a listen. So now I'm really delighted to be joined today by Claudia Sadoff. Claudia is the Managing Director for Research Delivery and Impact at CGIAR, a global partnership that unites international organizations who are engaged in research around food security. Claudia is a leading expert on water systems and is also a member of the scientific group of the 2021 United Nations Food Systems Summit. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. So we're often told by optimistic commentators that we're living in a world where quality of life indicators are generally improving, that we're in a time of general progress, and that in a sense, for much of the global population, we've never had it so good. But do you think that's a fair characterization when we're talking about food provision and security? Well, we're at a really interesting moment, frankly, in, in food security. We, a few years ago, passed a milestone where we found that we had as many people suffering from obesity in the world as we had people suffering from malnutrition. And the aggregate number of calories available globally has been growing uh, and available for, for many years now. Until the past couple of years, in just the past couple of years, we've seen declines in food availability and rises in malnutrition that we haven't seen in decades. So we currently have 150 million people facing acute hunger, and this is actually a growing food crisis, which is compounded at this point by extreme weather, by conflict, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, what is important to understand is just how closely related the food system is to our earth systems. Our climate is in fact so closely connected to our food systems that even if fossil fuels were eliminated today, emissions from farming would mean that global temperatures would still likely increase by at least one and a half degrees and possibly more. So what we find is that the connection between food systems, which are suddenly faltering again, and climate change, which is accelerating more rapidly than any of us had predicted, are, are inextricably intertwined. And the only way really to address both is to address both in tandem. If you could tell us a bit more about what you think has been driving this recent fall in, in standards. I mean, you say 150 million people now um, in a precarious situation regarding their access to food. What has changed in the last couple of years that has seen this situation worsen? There are really um, so many different factors involved, of course. We've seen uh, conflict and migration. We have seen, certainly during COVID, we've seen the disruption of production and, and food change. Climate variability is already having an effect on agricultural systems, and these we expect will intensify in the future. So, for example, rising CO2 concentrations are being linked with decreases in the micronutrient densities of some staple crops. So, in fact, the, the, the changes that we're seeing globally from climate are actually diminishing the nutritional value of the basic foods that we grow. The increasing frequencies of floods and drought and extreme heat 
are also undermining the agricultural productivity and the livelihoods of the many, many small farmers that we rely on for the, for the global food supply. And this is just having tremendous repercussions on well-being and health. We also have, even in countries where uh, there may be adequate calories available, the level of nutrition that people are achieving isn't what we would hope that it would be. Diets aren't as healthful as we would hope that they would be, and that is also contributing in many cases. I wanted to ask a bit about this disparity that you've spoken about so far on um, areas of the world where there are major food shortages and, and also areas of the world where actually maybe there's oversupply. And I think something that's been sort of creeping back into the discourse around climate change often actually is this kind of idea that the global population has now exceeded what the planet can meaningfully provide to sustain it. Is that something that you think has any basis in, in fact, or is it actually a problem of distribution? You, you know, it's, it's an argument that we've been having since Malthus, right? We, we keep imagining that we're <laughs> at the tipping point where the, where the globe can no longer sustain population. And I think that the, the sobering truth here is that we are getting close to that point if we continue to do things the way that we're doing them now. So we really are beginning to bump up against many of our earth systems boundaries, these planetary boundaries that so many people are talking about in terms of the GHG emissions that we're creating, the extensive land use changes that we're seeing and, and the ways in which that undermines the, the basic ecosystems and biodiversity that we rely on, the overdraw of fresh water in so many places, and in particular groundwater, which is a bit of an invisible and creeping threat, as well as soil degradation. It's estimated that about a third of the world's soils are severely degraded. So we are doing damage to our earth systems, but we don't need to in order to feed the planet. There are different ways of growing our food, of preparing our food, of distributing our food, different diets that we can follow that can have far less impact on the earth. So the question really isn't, you know, can the earth provide us with food? It's almost, can we manage the earth in the way that will allow us to provide ourselves with food? Um, it is the way in which we're doing things that is, is uh, undermining the uh, ecosystems that we all rely on. Do you think that that's a lesson that is increasingly understood in the in the development sector I, th I think when politicians at least talk about development they they talk about it in the terms of extending the benefits of the western capitalist model to other parts of the world and allowing other populations to to live the life that you might live in the us for example or in western europe do you think that maybe the agenda needs to change to stop that being the kind of assumption that, that everybody can live in this way and that that way of life is necessarily the way of life that we should be aiming for anyway? Well, that's such an interesting question, Ben, because absolutely yes and absolutely no, right? Absolutely yes, everyone should be able to enjoy an abundant and healthful diet. 
And there's no reason that, that, that the earth can't sustain that if we do things well. So I'm excited, really excited about the UN Food Systems Summit this year, because I do think it's that opportunity for us to sort of reset our thinking and reset our ambitions and reset the way in which we sort of frame the challenge of how we are going to produce this food. So at the CGIR, for example, we work across a range of ways in which we can achieve both. We work on a, on a micro scale, we work in plant and animal health and breeding. How can we create more vibrant and high productivity crops with uh, greater nutrients? What are the seeds that we need? What are the practices that we need? How can we keep the health of our animals stronger and, and create a more productive agriculture at the scientific breeding level? And then how do we put these into really resilient agri-food systems? How do our farming practices, regenerative agricultural practices, sustainable agricultural intensification, agroecology, these are all ways in which nature-based solutions, ways in which we can produce our food, grow our food in, in ways in mixed-use landscape-managed systems that can provide both stability to the ecosystem, home for biodiversity, and yet really resilient agri-food systems. And then at the sort of meta-policy scale, how do we create trade regimes, agricultural regimes, uh, regulatory regimes that ensure that we are sustaining the productivity of our soils and we're protecting the renewable resource that water should be um, and the quality of, of our water and our soils? How are we um, trying to do what we can to create the incentives to diminish the conversion of natural habitats and land to preserve our forests or to create uh, mixed agroforestry systems, mix those into productive systems that, that are more sustainable? And if we really change the way in which our food systems operate from seeds all the way through the farming practices to the policies, there's no reason that we need to choose between healthy diets for everyone and a thriving earth. And in fact, we can't, <laughs> we can't have one without the other, arguably. We really need to, to join this up and then to look at what science and policy can provide us to ensure the outcomes that we want, which is a very healthful, abundant and secure diet for everyone. I'd like to come back to possible solutions for those, those scientific examples you were drawing on there were so interesting, but I wonder as well whether I could ask you a bit about how we go about changing sort of public behavior on this, because it's all very well to have technical solutions that can improve, as you say, the, the way that agricultural systems function. But I think I'm right that there's evidence that actually, you know, this overconsumption problem is something that we do need to address more at the kind of behavioral kind of social level. And so I wonder if you have any any views on how we make that argument, how we persuade people that they shouldn't expect to have red meat for dinner every night. Where does that messaging come in and, and how do you combine the technological and, and scientific solutions with that more behavioral side? Well, I think one of the places to start actually is just with food waste. I think people are very unconscious of food waste. And this is an exciting discussion that's begun, I think, globally. Mm. This whole idea of ugly produce, for example. You know, so much of the food that's produced is either not considered fit for sale or never gets to where it's going. Or even once it hits your plate, the estimates are that 25 to 30% of 
food that actually makes it all the way through from production to distribution to sale to purchase to preparation is wasted actually on your plate. And we need to think much more carefully about that. And I think that this is a this is a very significant culture change that is beginning. We're seeing um, constructs, for example, just greater consciousness around the food choices that we make. We're seeing a real interest in organic foods, in locally produced foods, in meat alternatives that for a variety of reasons are really gaining strength and I think are really very important. You know, we worry about climate change, we worry about biodiversity, we worry about the sustainability of our earth, but not many people connect that to the food choices they make every day. And that I think is a real shift that we have to look at. You know, we as an individual, you may buy a Prius or an electric car and believe that you're, you know, you're saving the planet, but the food choices that you make every day are actually far more impactful on a personal level than those changes. So I think that this consciousness and the availability of alternatives is a really important place to start. Public policy can make some impacts perhaps in in pricing, in information campaigns to change the way we look at food. But I really think it's a big cultural shift and I'm very excited to see the conversations that are ongoing at this point where this is really beginning to speak to people. I want to try and sustain that positive note with my next question, because I I had a concern that this conversation was going to be very, um, very dark, (laughs) very depressing. You know, there's a lot to worry about in the world at the moment. I just wondered whether through the work of your organization, you have any examples where this kind of rethinking, whether it's technical or cultural, where this rethinking is being done well, even at a local level. Do you have any thoughts on that? So when we, when we try to look at examples and talk about solutions that are available, I think what's really important to accept is that there are very differentiated challenges regionally and globally. So what's exciting is that on the one hand, you have a real global discussion going, for example, with the Food Systems Summit, and this recognition that our food systems as a global system really need a reset. We really need to think about how we can produce much more sustainable, resilient, high nutrition foods in ways that also preserve the environment, that recognize inequities. I mean, agriculture is one of the largest employers in the world. So you also have some really exciting opportunities for poverty alleviation, for gender equality and inclusion in these spaces as well. But the specific sort of shifts in in thinking and, and action really depend on where you are. So for example, there was an Eat Lancet study that came out, which was very exciting, and it really focused on the ways in which primarily European North American OECD diets could change to have an enormous impact on the planet. Some really exciting solutions there to look differently at at our nutrition, ways in which we could eat that would be healthier for us and healthier for the planet. At the same time, though, these diets in, in different regions of the world have different potential. And these same, for example, meat sources that are overconsumed for personal health in, in Western countries are the primary and only truly immediately accessible source of protein in, in many countries. And we need to find a way to ensure, again, to ensure healthy diets for everyone. In some cases, that will mean the increase 
of, of the same foodstuffs that are needing to be decreased in other places. But we need to accept that differentiation of circumstance and that differentiation of opportunity and options. And then perhaps work toward more options being available to everyone. But it's the scope of our agriculture, all of which is essential. Crops, livestock, fisheries, these are all essential aspects of our food system, of the nutrition of the people of the planet, of the livelihoods of so many farmers. We need to look at that whole system, make sure we ensure opportunities for everyone along the way, respect uh, the different differences and, and, and options that people have, and then work toward a vision of a more sustainable and, and healthful diet for everyone. Absolutely. So we see that we need significant transformation at all levels and in different action areas. At the CG, for example, we have a transformation initiative that looks at five different areas for action. Adaptation and development pathways for different types of farmers, local to global policy as a catalyst for change, changing diets and transforming food systems, future technologies and food systems innovation for accelerating progress toward the SDGs, and importantly, financing the transformation of food systems under a changing climate. You see, it's action in all of these areas brought together with this more holistic and integrated view that's needed to really reset our food systems in a way that supports our goals around climate resilience and around biodiversity conservation as well. Having said that, I wanted to kind of keep it positive. I just wondered mm -hmm. if you could tell me a bit about how these issues that we're talking about feed into other areas of political and social life. How, how does it affect other issues that are very much on, on the global agenda? I think something that I find so interesting and also a bit scary at the moment is that I still feel that environmental issues are often portioned off and siloed away into its own space and that actually we need a much more kind of integrated understanding of how it affects all other aspects of, of our lives. So I just wondered if you could maybe talk a bit about how it relates to other political issues and also the risks of getting this wrong if we fail to act. That question really speaks to this way in which we try to compartmentalise environment into something that would be lovely if we could afford it, <laughs> instead of understanding that the environment and the ecosystem is the resource base upon which we feed ourselves, upon which we thrive, and a resource base of tremendous value in and of itself, because it's not just our support system, it's the support system for all life on Earth and for biodiversity. So it's really very interesting that we, that we feel that it's somehow separable or delayable. <laughs> And what we see, um, and I think climate change is, is changing the optics on this because we're seeing it in, in much greater relief. Through history, we've had you know, bread riots and uh, social fragility and instability that arises as a consequence of famine or floods. And we're seeing those sorts of extreme events happening much more frequently now. What we're seeing is that they impact the poor disproportionately. There's a lot of research that shows that, that it impacts those who are arguably disenfranchised, less secure, and therefore really destabilizes communities. The opportunity here is that if we do think of these different pressures as one, 
food security, environmental disruption is one. How can we invest in resilient food systems that also help strengthen social fabric and social stability? As I mentioned before, agriculture is a, a tremendous employer in the world. Particularly in poor countries, large, large numbers of poor people are engaged in agriculture. How can we create opportunities if we have, for example, a fragile state? Can we invest in labor-intensive food production and agriculture in a way that provides jobs and livelihoods and that creates sustainability and resilience for exactly those groups and sub-communities and, and sectors that are most vulnerable to climate change? How can we ensure that the basic human rights of food and clean water, for example, are maintained in these spaces? And so much of that, again, is, is tied up in agriculture. About 70% 70, uh, 70 of the world's water, for example, fresh water is used in agriculture. And in poor countries, that's often 90, 95%. So even the supply of water is very deeply entwined in, in the food systems. So the opportunity here, again, like food systems and climate, is to think food systems, climate, and, and social fragility. If we look at this all at once, can we stabilize farming communities as we stabilize food systems, which we need in order to stabilize our climate emissions in a way that moves us toward the, the goals in all of those areas? I want to sort of draw us towards a close, but I want to look ahead to what's coming up this year and really ask you how you think the international community can come together and coalesce around these, these ideas, around these solutions that we've already spoken about, both technical and, and cultural, and how can we sort of build the momentum for this? Are these problems, problems that you think need to be solved at the level of states or even international organisations, or... Is this something that can be achieved through a more kind of grassroots civil society kind of approach? And just as a kind of follow up to that, obviously, we've already spoken about the Food Systems Summit that you're participating in this year. It's also a, it's a big year for climate summits as well with COP26 and the Biodiversity Summit also um, in the summer. I just wondered whether you're optimistic that those events can be a kind of site for this cooperation and this momentum to build and whether the interconnectedness of these issues that we've been speaking about is built into these summits. Do you think this is something that we can really see realising through the course of 2020? Well, I think that this is something we absolutely must see. And I think that's really the opportunity of uh, 2021. I think uh, many of us are hoping that 2021 will begin to be a much brighter and more forward-looking year than 2020 was. And we do have these really important global moments to elevate the discussion. Because the answer is that these shifts, they need to take place at every scale. They need to take place at the global scale to change mindsets and priorities. And with changing mindsets and priorities, we change our opportunities, we change resource allocations. We need to invest in transforming our food systems. And this is what the Food Systems Summit is about. We need to invest because it doesn't, it's, it won't happen by itself in changing the way that we design and undertake the, the production, 
uh, sale, consumption, distribution, and disposal of our food, of our, of our full food systems. And certainly at the Food Systems Summit, there's a tremendous amount of discussion about these other areas, about nature-based solutions, about nature-positive solutions to the ways in which we need to uh, change the food system. Clearly, a tremendous amount of discussion around the resilience of food systems to climate. And we're hoping that in each one of these major events, the food, the climate, and the, the sort of nature events, that those connections will be made much more strongly because we can't achieve our goals in any one of these areas without connecting quite strongly into the other areas. So if we can draw these together at the global scale and change the mindset of separability, <laughs> then hopefully we can begin to allocate energy and resources to a much more holistic set of solutions. That said, that those solutions need to take place at every scale. So they need to take place Globally in the discussion, they need to take place nationally in planning, where we often come to silos, ministries of agriculture, uh, environment, climate, uh, if you have them, employment, labor, etc. They need to come together for real strategies alongside their ministries of finance, frankly, the policies, the pricing, the regulations, and in many cases will need to change to reorient, to reset our food systems. And even if those national level policies are set, we still need to bring it down to the communities. We need to bring it down to the farming practices. We need to give the proper information and support to, to farmers. We need to provide them with the science, the evidence, the seeds, the technologies. And there's so much we can do with new digital technologies and with modern breeding and the innovations are really uh, extraordinary, but we need to bring all of that together if we really want to see the reset that we need to realign our food systems to support the goals of climate and biodiversity and vice versa, three ways. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Claudia Sadov, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Okay, so for this interview, I'm joined by David Weavers. Hi, David. Hi, Mariana. Thanks so much for the invitation. Dr. David wrote an article for The World Today, Chatham Houses magazine, just before the new year. Looking at the debate around the British Empire, David advocated for reinterpreting our past through today's values. Um, the link for the article will be in our show notes. Uh, David, thanks so much for being here. For my first question, I would like to touch upon the magazine article I've just mentioned. You wrote about how the debate surrounding empire was here to stay and likely to become more contested. In 2020, as a response to the BLM movement, we saw Boris Johnson warn against any quote-unquote cringing embarrassment about our history. And we have seen this flare up most recently with how the government has re-energized the empire debate by condemning the anti-imperial sentiment behind the statues that have been taken down targeting higher education institutions in an effort to appoint free speech champions and mounting challenges to the heritage bodies whose work and research seeks to reevaluate British history. What is your take on the British government's intensification of this culture war or cancel culture? In many ways, it's a fascinating time to be a historian and in many ways a rather stressful time. I mean, one of the big things that historians 
pride themselves on is being able to engage and shape public debate about our past. And, you know, that's both a responsibility and a privilege. But uh, at the moment, with the government's kind of rather unlooked for and unwanted intervention in the debate, it's become heavily politicised. So I think the kind of the, the developments of the past couple of weeks, you mentioned the free speech champion, which has uh, just been appointed to sit on the Office for Students board which student unions and universities have come out to reject as part of a political agenda. You know, and I, and I want to speak as much today as I can as a historian, but it's difficult when the debate has become so politicised. Um, and I think it really hinges on the kind of manufacturing of a, a free speech crisis and a, and a culture war. And I must say, it's almost always exclusively used by politicians, this idea of a uh, a free speech crisis and a, and a culture war. I don't think most historians or academics would see a culture war raging. They see successful scholarship challenging and reinterpreting the parameters of how we understand the past. That's what good history scholarship does. I mean, that's, that's quite literally what we're paid for and what um, generations of historians have been doing. So if, if history itself hasn't changed, the political environment must have changed and, you know, and it certainly has. And I think that that's something that sometimes I think Brexit can be overplayed in this. But certainly in the past couple of years, since the kind of post-Brexit debate, there has been a concerted effort to reinforce the push for Brexit, but then reinforce, you know, Britain's position outside Europe with a national narrative that is positive. And I think Gavin Williamson uh, used the word glorious, a glorious British history. And, you know, that's that's a that's a politician's job. And I, I can understand that perspective. And, you know, not not many people take those sorts of things seriously. And that will come and go. And, you know, we've heard that continuously in the past. But I think what 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 is particularly dangerous about the new intensification of this issue is the, the kind of free speech element to it. And I think this is a kind of dangerous attempt to kind of contain academic scholarship within the parameters of what a certain group of people find acceptable and it has nothing to do with scholarship or academia or expertise and it has everything to do with conforming to a certain uh, particular view of our past and it's a view that's you know outdated and, and based on you know something you might recognize from 20 30 years ago but in many ways I don't think the public and political conversation has kept a pace with changes in developments in academic scholarship which for the past 20 or 30 years has, has really been about reinterpreting our, our idea of empire. When you privilege a narrative of abolition in a way that distorts or even attempts to hide a previous 300 year history of Britain and then before that England as the largest slave trader. And even very recently, really cutting edge research has uh, shed light on the way in which large portions of British political and social uh, opinion actually tried to resist abolition and how hotly contested and fought it was right up to the moment it was eventually legislated and, and achieved. So these are rich, you know, seams of new research that help reshape our idea of the past and really kind of broaden our understanding beyond a very narrow abolitionist narrative to a big wider, what was this system of slavery of which Britain played a very large part. And let's not just focus on the abolitionists, let's focus on the slaves and even the enslaved as well. So that in any other period of time, it would be a very welcome development and a kind of rich conversation to have publicly and even politically as well. But in the current climate, especially in the post-Brexit climate, that is at odds and, and that doesn't gel very well with a message that is being 
courted. But, you know, the politicalization of, of the debate has kind of given it a slightly, not necessarily a populist edge, but there's an attempt here to appeal to a certain section of political opinion that is quite conservative and and, and quite right wing that doesn't want to shed light on things like Britain's past with slavery, but actually wants to focus on abolition. And that creates a kind of warm, fuzzy narrative and, and you know, creates a nice complete narrative of, of glorious Britannia, which we're all used to from school, certainly my sort of age, we wouldn't, wouldn't hear anything about the slave trade, it would all be about the, the, the abolition and we felt pride in that. So this idea of free speech, I think that's sort of crept in the past, really the past kind of six months, and has now really formalised. Uh, I think a lot of people have been taken, not necessarily by surprise, but become quite chilled by the government's intervention. But I, I think that when it comes to free speech, I think what we're seeing really is it's not the promotion of free speech and an open debate. It's the promotion of a particular side of free speech, one that conforms with this kind of cherished national narrative of, of glorious Britannia. And we don't just see it in history. It's spilling out into other academic disciplines, especially kind of English literature, for example. So, so that's the kind of politicisation, that's the sort of climate, the kind of environment I think that the debate has now shifted to. Last year it was about statues and it was about uh, slavery and it was about acknowledging that on the back of absolutely transformative Black Lives Matters movement and a reckoning with the continued inequalities that we see in society that are really stem all the way back from empire and the way in which you know, it was not just a system of uh, you know governance, but it was a system of exploitation and inequality that was perpetuated. Uh, you know, you go even further back there. A couple of years before, we had the Windrush scandal, and these are all imperial, you know, imperially themed contemporary events. And now this year, we're shifting to the idea of free speech and the promotion of a national narrative. So when I, I wrote that article, uh, it kind of poses this question: Is will this remain relevant? I like to think that was clearly the case and I think the pattern we're seeing is this isn't going away it's just evolving and it's being largely shaped by a politically driven conversation so it's both interesting time to be a historian but but I think it's also with this kind of new development into the kind of realms of free speech and this sort of government overseer with some scary powers for example to fine universities if you're imposing fines on universities according to a government criteria of free speech, a conservative government. That, I think that's going to create a kind of scary precedent and create an atmosphere in which scholars and scholarship will not feel free to follow the research. It will instead be vulnerable to public and government opinion. And, you know, I think good scholarship should be aware of contemporary society and public issues and the best scholarship engages with that and you know we as universities our funding comes partly from impact and what kind of how do we intersect with society and societal issues but it should never that should never be the determining cause of, of scholarship you know we conduct history for history's sake and if that challenges and creates discomfort in national narratives then fine if it reinforces some positive aspects fine but it shouldn't do one more than the other I think you made a really good point about how the scholarship seeking to shape the debate around history and around British narratives is becoming increasingly politicized. And um, in the context of the government's culture war agenda, there are a lot of questions surrounding the relationship between governmental funding and national history. How can this relationship prevent or enable the past from delivering on its rich lessons? 
that's really the leverage I think the government has to kind of enforce this agenda. I mean, part of the criticism from politicians and certain sections of public opinion is that the kind of free speech that's being curtailed is the kind of free speech to fund and research scholarship that looks at empire as benevolent or research that isn't necessarily being funded. And a really good example, I, I guess, would be a theologian from, from Oxford, uh, Nigel Bigger, his work or, or project was designed to look at the positive aspects of the empire. And he's written, you know, a lot of work on the way in which Cecil Rhodes, you know, wasn't racist and, you know, was uh, Britain was a force for good in the world, you know, very kind of Victorian outdated narratives. Yeah, and that project was, uh, you know, didn't go ahead and it received kind of condemnation from academics. And I think that's the kind of episodes that politicians like to pick out as this idea of a raging culture war and an attack on free speech. And, and what's really interesting about the funding of scholarship is that very few of the projects or the research that seeks funding based on these sorts of antiquated ideas, are very rarely, if ever, from historians. I can't really think of more than a few historians that are actively engaged in scholarship which seeks to understand the British Empire as a force of good, for example. And of the few that have made headlines lately, Nigel uh, Bigger is the most uh, prominent one, who is constantly you know, writing articles in national newspapers complaining about being cancelled when, uh, you know, I'd love to write in national newspapers and complain about being cancelled. But when you're given that much airtime and and column inches, I think you need to reevaluate whether you're being cancelled or not. Uh, you know, and there's historians from the US as well. A recent Dutch historian has, has weighed in with a kind of rather controversial piece in The Spectator last year, denying any sort of colonial violence and that had you know, Europeans not stepped in and colonised the rest of the world, it would have been chaos. So these are the sorts of projects and, and arguments that are being condemned and I think that are being criticised. But the development of academic scholarship is it's kind of built on challenging, outdated ideas. You know, like any discipline, like you know, everything from science and philosophy and art and medicine is that the, the, the discipline evolves and innovates and develops and we are developing new methodological and historiographical tools to understand the past. So when non-historians fray into the debate with outdated views, like outdated views in medicine, you know, people weigh in about the idea of COVID vaccines, you know, should be ineffective or, you know, Western medicine shouldn't be the way to treat cancer, for example. You know, these are dangerous attempts to undermine the work that academics have been labouring to do. That's sort of the problem. You see that in uh, the Brexit debate, the kind of suspicion and challenge to economists who said, oh, I don't think this is going to be a good idea. You know, Michael Gove famously saying, I think we've heard enough from experts. To the COVID crisis where scientists were challenged. And then now in the so-called cultural world where historians are being delegitimized. You know, it's a scary kind of precedent of suspicion towards experts and academic scholarship. So I think that the government is sort of is in a position where they could potentially if they take this further, and they do seem to be escalating this attack on academic scholarship, is to, is to use funding to sideline some seams of inquiry in favour of others. The criticism that's being done against conservative historians is, I think, a very selective because there aren't many who are historians, they're theologians or economists or, or what have you. But, you know, it's because the, the kind of projects they put forward are very much discriminatory. I mean, you know, free speech, we all have a right to free speech in this country, but free speech that does not discriminate uh, or promote hate or, or harm. And uh, a lot of these projects in denying, you know, racism and the negative impact of slavery are harmful and they perpetuate 
discrimination. If you go to a university campus and you look at the scholarship and the work that academics are doing, you would not see a culture war. You wouldn't see an attack on free speech. It's it's controversial and it's lively and it's infused with debate and it comes from a very diverse range of different kinds of scholars. So what we see is a thriving scholarship that's coming from all different perspectives and looking at a variety of topics. But the kind of scholarship that's being funded right now is the kind of scholarship that's, that's moving the field forward, that's changing our understanding on the past. And it's partly a reflection of current cultural and social norms and, and values and belief that we have in society. No, you, you know, a project that denies racism and, you know, refuses to understand the legacies of slavery is, is not going to get funded by a funding body because, you know, why would it? Like all disciplines, you know, history moves generationally, you know, we have big shifts and after the Second World War, there's a shift towards social and cultural histories and looking at not just the role of heroic white men, but looking at the role of, uh, of women and of poverty and of race. And that's created this kind of rich tapestry of British history. So this is nothing new. Shifts in the field are not new. But I think when they challenge a particular political agenda, I think that's when they can become supposedly subversive. So I'm interested to see, my answer, I guess, is that I'm not sure the, the role funding or defunding might play towards future research. I mean, in a way, it already has a big impact with Brexit and the cutting off of certain research funding, which is having a major impact on research done in this country. But whether we see more projects being funded and more scholarship being funded by government bodies that look to show the positive aspects of the empire, for example, or challenge reinterpretations of our past. I mean, that would be scary, but with the announcement of a free speech czar, who knows, we, we, we might see that. I think that in a way is, is overplaying the situation because I, I think this is a largely manufactured crisis. I don't see it on the ground at universities or, or in scholarship. It, these are very small episodes being taken out of context usually, and very rarely involving actual historians. I think the idea that you mentioned quite a lot, which is very recurrent, is the idea of challenging outdated ideas and uh, Victorian myths, for instance. And in the same magazine article I was just referring to earlier, you contrast the process of subjecting past events and people to serious critical study with political myth-making for nationalistic purposes. How can we avoid generating historical narratives that become beyond reproach while emphasizing that historical research has a political agenda? I mean, the easy answer would be, you know, to the public sphere, to trust the academic sphere and to embrace new academic scholarship. But actually, you know, partly it may be a wake up call for, you know, historians and academics to publicise their work better and to engage with public constituencies and public bodies and, and audiences. And, you know, that may be, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure more than a few of my colleagues would probably say that's placing the blame in the wrong place. I don't think it's necessarily blame, but what we could possibly do to help is to make our, our research more public facing. And I think that, I think that's being done to an extent. There's a lot more research that's going from the kind of strictly academic realm that's being written in terms of narrative and popular histories, but based on fantastic scholarship. Uh, especially by, by women. There's some, some fantastic books coming out over the next couple of years by female colleagues that take the kind of rich research that we're doing, but for a wider public audience. So I think in a way that there's the things that academics can do, but really, again, I, I think this is in part the decay of the humanities and certainly the attack on funding for the humanities over the past 15 years or so by government in favour of 
STEM subjects, for instance. Uh, we see this with the way in which uh, universities are assessed and awarded funding. They're assessed in a way that uh, disadvantages arts and humanities in showing, for example, impact and measurable outcome. That's the kind of thing that is uh, often difficult to evidence in, for example, history. And in a way, the consumerization of academic uh, scholarship and universities and, uh, have kind of taken away the focus of academic research. In a way, I think that this is, you know, we're, we're bearing witness to the results of the government not funding the humanities properly. And that there needs to be, it needs to be taken seriously, just like any other subject, uh, and just like the STEM subjects, because if people aren't being taught critical thinking skills, if they're not engaging with new innovative scholarship of the past, then they're going to grow up and, and go through life, you know, being taught a maybe maybe up to year nine, maybe up to the, the age of sort of 13 or 14 of their history, which is all, you know, Churchill and Hitler and Henry VIII. Uh, you know, I'm a white middle-class male from Sussex. 15 or 20 years ago, I wouldn't have entertained any sullying of Churchill and his reputation. But as with most of us, you know, he's a hagiographic figure, right? He's, you know, he holds this position in, in our minds as having single-handedly won the Second World War. But now as a trained historian, you know, I'm and I don't think you need to be trained to my extent, but I do think you need more exposure to history beyond just year nine. You know, I can understand that hagiography has no place in serious understandings of the past. And to refuse to revise Churchill's life within the context of new interpretations would be a rejection of history in favour of patriotism and, and nationalism. And I think we've seen how dangerous that has been in the US the past couple of years. Trump's 1776 commission, which was, we won't focus on slavery, we'll focus on the founding fathers and, and this sort of thing. You know, Churchill can have a celebratory role to play in the defeat of Nazi Germany, while still being understood as responsible for the enforcement of a colonial system built on violence and predicated on ideas of white supremacy. And the only reason you wouldn't acknowledge that and integrate that into your understanding of Churchill and, and, and the Second World War in the past is either A, that it doesn't serve your particular political agenda, or cultural worldview, or B, you just want to cling to warm, fuzzy, but very outdated uh, and incorrect views of the past. And I think that's why history is so important. It's not about expanding those national narratives. It's about challenging them and integrating new research. And that really starts from year nine onwards. It doesn't stop at year nine. Otherwise, there are entire generations that aren't taught to think critically and to take on board new information. You know, a good education Academia should be about challenging and subverting and, and pushing people out of their comfort zones. And I understand that's very sensitive when it comes to our histories, because they're so intimately bound up with who we are and our identity. But I always think it's funny that those who, those who criticise the EU, for example, and its role in undermining British sovereignty, are those that often will try and think of empire as a force of good, that those two things don't sit well together. It's, it's an interesting one. But, you know, academic scholarship doesn't serve public opinion just as much as science or medicine doesn't serve to make the public feel warm and fuzzy. It serves its own scholarly inquiry. Academics are led by their research. And if done well, it seeks to engage with public, important public issues, but it's not beholden to that. And it certainly shouldn't frame itself according to a, a interpretation of free speech, you know, put forward by a conservative government. That's just such a dangerous precedent. We don't, we don't often see that in liberal Western democracies. So it's a chilling, it's a chilling step, I think. So you made a really good point on uh, education and being a historian and how this hinges upon small things or at the granular level, A-level textbooks. 
So as a lecturer in history, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts about the role of education and the generational divide when it comes to the general public's assessment of the British Empire. While older generations have engaged with the British Empire as a given or unchangeable fact of life, younger generations have undertaken a more comprehensive questioning of its morality. Uh, numbers from a Ipsos Mori survey carried out last August show that the percentage of correspondents that consider the British Empire something to be proud of increases proportionally or almost proportionally with age, from 28% of those aged between 18 to 24, uh, rising all the way to 40% of those aged between 55 to 75. So my question is, how can education help us move away from a good versus bad polarizing debate around empire? And what would a more productive framework of discussion look like? I think in many ways, this is the root the stem of the current controversy that we're seeing in that certainly for, you know, I'm in my um, mid thirties. So for my generation, I can confidently say I wasn't exposed to any history of the British empire all the way through GCC and into a level We, you know, we had a lot of Henry VIII and Hitler and Churchill and, and that sort of thing. So I think that really it all comes down to, the way in which the provision of history is delivered, not just at degree level, but all the way down. Uh, and I mentioned earlier about, as you said, A-level textbooks, for example. From 2015, there was the new uh, history curriculum brought in by the government that was overseen by Michael Gove, and that insisted on a percentage of all, all topics being taught as, as British history, you know, which I don't think historians would have a have a problem with that, although that's, you know, it's such a shame because... If you look at history from a particular perspective, if it's British, for example, it's inevitably going to promote a very Eurocentric understanding of, of our past. And I think that the way in which that British history component is being taught in schools and, and at colleges is very sanitised. And I think it's not a question. I think this is the way it's being framed by politicians and certain groups. And, you know, I keep saying politicians, but, you know, there is a public opinion as well. You know, a really good example of that is the think tank uh, Policy Exchange and its new project, History Matters, which is in itself in the agenda on its website. It again, once again, plays up this cultural, uh, you know, it says that you know, history is the most active battleground of the culture war. And, you know, academics are taking quick and wide action to make sure that it doesn't reflect public opinion or our growing concern at the treatment of the past. But, you know, it's the kind of opposite of what academics want to happen to the provision of history education in in schools and colleges so it's it's in the one way you know there's a demand for history to show the good and the bad it shouldn't be a, an exercise in morality they would say and you know you have to show the good and the bad and yet attempts to shed light on the bad often provoke a, a kind of the outrage of i think gavin williamson said yesterday doing britain down the thing is, is that history doesn't care about pride or shame. It's, it doesn't serve and it doesn't have an emotional responsibility, although it certainly provokes emotions. What matters is that it provides skills of critical thinking uh, and analysis and evaluation. And it provides students with the ability to understand and integrate a number of different perspectives of our past. And it's not just a British past. You know, it's, a, it's a global history and we live in a global society and that's reflected in, in our culture and the students that will be attending the schools and not just ethnically and, and culturally, but religiously and, 
in terms of sexuality as well. You know, history has a thriving queer studies subfield, for example. And there's such important, you know, developments that need to be integrated at all levels of history provision. And it's not just about understanding the past better in equipping students with critical thinking skills and analysis and evaluative skills. You know, that just makes them better citizens in life. And I, and I think that the kind of rot in the relationship between history of the British Empire and the current outrage in certain public and political circles is, is that, as you alluded to, many of the people involved on that uh, are those that receive this kind of sanitised history of the British Empire, which goes sort of Francis Drake, Robert Clive, you know, William Wilberforce, Churchill. And in many ways, that's, yes, that, that's glorious, but it's not, that's not the kind of understanding of our past you would find if you were equipped with the critical thinking skills that history as a discipline provides people with. So I think that the provision both needs to be widened beyond British history, but I think it needs to, you know, it, it needs to not be framed in a good versus bad debate. And what I see in the GCC and A-level textbooks, and when I challenged AQA on this, they withdrew the, the textbook uh, promising to go over and, and rethink it and do better. As then I investigated OCR and LXL textbooks, and they were kind of the same, this kind of good and bad. Genocide, not so great, but sport, wonderful. And I think if you frame, if you try and do the whole good versus bad, it's just that's just a very poor analytical approach to history. When politicians demand kind of warts and all, what they really want is, is a chance to kind of privilege, kind of feel good history. Uh, so I think really it is about the nuance. And, you know, we hear this word thrown around so much, but, you know, it's important to understand abolition, but we can only understand abolition by contextualising it with Britain's role in the enslavement of African people prior to that. So I think really the provision of history right now below undergraduate level is premised on this good versus bad and it creates a very balanced approach and this is obsession with balance and what is sacrificed is serious scholarly inquiry and that doesn't have to be about morality it's just looking at every facet of our past and integrating that into lots of different perspectives of history so you can have a queer history of Britain you know you can have a history of Britain that focuses on poverty you can have a black history of Britain they, they should not be excluded from our national narratives. They're part of our national narratives. Anyone who feels threatened by a black history of Britain and that it somehow rewrites history, I'm just saying that they don't want to know more about our past. They want to cling to it, this sanitised national narrative that's very feel-good and, and glorious. That's fine, but you, you, that's not history and you don't want to do history. You're not interested in serious historical scholarship. So I, I think obviously nuance is welcome, but not the idea of this kind of good versus bad. So, so I think that the point I made earlier is, is how can we contribute to a kind of solution here? And I, so I think it's that humanities and especially history has to has to be privileged more. And I think it's going to equip students and future leaders and policymakers with the big picture as opposed to a kind of narrow nationalist picture or patriotic picture. And, you know, you see people like Gavin Williamson, you know, they went private school to kind of Eton to Cambridge or Oxford. And the kind of history that was being fed during that time period is very out of touch with the kind of history that, you know, is happening now. And to be fair, I'm sure some of those institutions now do teach a kind of far more diverse and, and integrated history. But they are definitely following the Britain good, paint the world with pink and Wilberforce Churchill kind of narrative. And it's just it just threatens to take the understanding of our past back, you know, 50 years. 
what a shame if we just stopped having paracetamol went back to bloodletting or something to relieve headaches it's just such a step in the wrong direction so i think the provision of education is probably the the root cause but also the root solution to this disconnect between public and political conversation and what's happening in academic research thank you so much david i think we'll wrap it up here on this rather more positive point on solutions and a forward-looking way of making history maybe feel a little less threatening and uh, focus on a more global history. I think that will also help uh, the debates become more productive. So thank you once again so much for joining us, David. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That was such an interesting interview, Mariana. Congrats on your your debut interview for Undercurrents. Thank you, Ben. I feel like I've done almost as good a job as my other co-host, Albert Swally, but uh, I'll try to improve and slowly climb up the ranks of the <laughs> podcasting industry. <laughs> well, we'll see how the download figures go. <laughs> you can take that up with her. I think competition's healthy. But you mentioned in the intro that you work for the World Today magazine, and there's a new issue of the World Today out this month. Why don't you tell us a bit about what's in it? So the new issue looked at how the EU and China might be sealing a deal behind Biden's back. And uh, to go with that story, we also covered uh, how America must heal itself before taking on any more leadership of uh, the international community. Other sections of the magazine looked at the importance of superheroes in culture and popular culture. Our interview was with uh, Rene DiResta, who looked at anti-vaxxers and conspiracy movements, not only in the US, but in all, also in other places. Uh, we covered a little bit of China, Egypt, and uh, heightened tensions between three Asian nuclear powers. Sounds like a really fantastic issue. Where can our listeners find it? Our current issue is always open access on the Chatham House website, just under publications. You will find the link for the World Today magazine. And uh, happy browsing. Yeah, enjoy. I'm definitely going to be digging out some of those articles now. I should have read them already. But that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you also to our guests, Claudia and David, for, for their insights. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with Chatham House's wider work, then the best way to do that is by following us on social media. Chatham House is on Twitter at Chatham House, as you might expect, and also on all other major social media platforms. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>